You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. I am delighted today. My conversational partner is Dr. Robert Cialdini. Robert Cialdini is known as the foundational expert in the science of influence. Robert is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestselling author with over 5 million copies sold in 44 different languages. He's the president and CEO of Influence at Work. Dr. Cialdini received his PhD from the University of North Carolina and postdoctoral training from Columbia University. Dr. Cialdini was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2018 and the National Academy of Sciences in 2019. Robert's work and books have been featured in the New York Times, Forbes, Inc., and the Psychology Today magazine, as well as many, many more. Dr. Cialdini, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Joe. I'm happy to be with you and uh, your followers. Such a pleasure. So I figured a great place to start is obviously with the big news. Your legendary book, Influence, is now new and updated. I read through it this weekend absolutely phenomenal um i figured uh, just a great place to start would be just really what made you want to update the book well you know there was a pull and a push there because the previous edition had continued to be selling well and uh appearing in various languages and so on but i remembered a quote that my grandfather used to favor which was if you want things to stay the same things are going to have to change around here. And uh, that was, uh, it seemed to me, an insightful uh, commentary on where I was at that particular time. I do want things to continue to be positive, and that meant I had to come along with all of the new uh, findings uh, that had emerged since the last edition of the book, uh, had to recognize the importance of online platforms for presenting persuasive appeals or of one sort or another. Um, and finally, uh, the biggest one was that I thought I had identified a, a new universal principle of influence, new in the sense that it wasn't part of the previous editions, uh, one that I call unity, that has to do with the extent to which people will be moved by a communicator in the in that that communicator's direction to the extent that the communicator can arrange for them to see him or her as one of them not just like them not just similar to them but of them of an important social uh group that helps identify them, that, that, can, that, that uh, essentially establishes their identity. Um, and uh, a perfect, I'll give you a quick example. A, a study was done on a college campus. Uh, researchers had a young woman, college age, stand in a heavily trafficked area of camp, campus and ask students going by for contributions to a 
united uh, to a, a legitimate charity and she was getting some donations but if she added one sentence to the request she more than doubled donations and the sentence was i'm a student here too in other words i'm not just like you i'm i'm one of you i am one of you and then all kinds of barriers to influence came down it turns out that within the groups we define as our we groups people are more willing to believe a communicator more willing to cooperate more willing to trust more willing and here's the the key more willing to say yes so i i thought with the emphasis we see these days in politics and international and even uh national um uh, policies of uh, of one sort or another tribalism mm. is so fundamental to the choices people made i thought i thought it was important to talk about that pressure to say yes to people who are within our groups and to any communicator who can convince us that they belong inside our groups I really appreciate that. And I'm so excited to delve into many examples from the book. But one place I'd actually like to start is when I was reading the book, um, because obviously you were a very renowned academic at the same time. And one thing that I would love to just ask you just as a kind of broad question is, what I love about influence is that you distill very specific academic papers. You've got case studies, literature, and everything in it that an academic would love. Except what you've done is you've made it so accessible to a, a wider range of people. Um, and I would just love to kind of ask, was it challenging to distill, you know, all so many academic papers and studies and journals and put them all into a book, which anybody reading could get something out of? It was difficult because I had to move away from the way that I traditionally, as an academic, thought about the communication process, how I framed my arguments, how I uh, laced my language with various kinds of words that had specific associations to my academic audience. And I had to break away from that. But um, it, it seemed to me it was important to do so for a reason that actually has to do with one of the universal principles of influence that we talk about in the book, and that is reciprocation. Hmm. That we're obligated to give back to others what they have first provided us. Right? We, we, and academics have been failing to give back to the larger community who have paid for their research in any meaningful way, have paid for the studies that they have done and then report in academic outlets, right? And it seemed to me that we owed the larger public the information that we had found out about them with their money. <laughs> we, we owed it to them. They paid for it. They, there was a contract that I think we engaged in or entered into that said, all right, the non-academic community will fund this research with their taxes, with their donations to the universities and so on. Uh, and 
in hopes that they will get something back in terms of a better understanding of how we work as a species so they can comport themselves uh, better and more economically and efficiently outside uh, you know the the uh, the situations where they encountered the uh, the, the information that we were setting, I mean, in their real-world lives. So it seemed to me I had to pay special attention to that and make sure that the information was accessible. And I'm so, so happy you did because I've, I've as I mentioned during pre-recorded, and long-term listeners of the show will know I've been talking about your books for, for three or four years now on this show, so... So I'm so glad you're here. And I would just love to, let's just take the view from 30,000 feet and we're going to delve, we're going to get granular into the new uh, principles of influence and various other things within the book. So if we just take an um, an overarching view, you've identified now seven principles of influence in, in the new and updated copy. Could you give us an outline of the seven principles? Surely. Uh, the first we've already alluded to reciprocation that says, by the way, in every human society, there is a, a rule that is taught to children from the outset. You must not take without giving in return. You, mm. you really, you, you can't do that. If you do that, there are very negative names that we assign to to people who take without giving in return. You know, uh, I think in uh, UK you call them spongers, you call them <laughs> moochers, or ingrates, or takers, and nobody wants to be assigned those languages. So we will go to great lengths to give back, and societies have made sure that we do that so that there's this well-functioning exchange between parties who can exchange resources of di various different sorts and uh, produce cooperative solutions to situations that any one person would not be able to surmount. So, uh, so that's one, is that it, it, people say yes to those they owe. Let's just say it that way. And what I always recommend to people is if, if you want to be more influential, let's say you go into a room with people and you want to uh, be uh, influential and in getting those people to uh, assist you in some way or uh, uh, do something that will uh, increase your outcomes, you shouldn't go in with the first question, who can help me here? Mm -hmm. The first question should be, whom can I help here? Whose circumstances can I elevate? Right. Whose outcomes can I enhance? Because there's a rule that was socialized into every one of those people that says, okay, now it's my turn. Now, when Joe asks me for something or when Joe, I see that Joe needs something, it's my turn. I have to by this rule, by what inside me tells me is the right thing to do, I have to step forward. So that's the rule for reciprocation. Another, the second rule is one that's very uh, obvious to almost anybody that I describe it to, liking. We prefer to say yes to the people we like. What's interesting though is that there are some small steps we can take to enhance the rapport that people feel with us before we ever uh, address them with a recommendation or a proposal or request. Uh, and those two things are on the one hand pointing to 
genuine similarities that exist be, uh, between us. Um, and uh, we like the people who are like us. Right? Now, when I'm talking about liking <clears throat> and similarities, I'm talking about similar tastes, similar preferences, similar styles, and so on, uh, that cause us to like that person. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're, you're like me. Uh, that's different from unity, which we were talking about earlier, where the similarity is not in <clears throat> commonality of these things like preferences and, and, and uh, styles, uh, but similarity in membership inside an organization. So we can talk about that next. So similarity is one of those things. The, the other thing that we can do that's uh, very powerful in getting um, uh, a, a greater rapport is to give honest compliments to people who genuinely warrant them. So another thing we can simply do is to recognize that if we go into a situation where we want people to like us more, we can first find something about them that we consider commendable and mention it. it it's, it's, a, it's a process. So, now, let's be honest. Some people, it's more difficult than other people <laughs> to find. <laughs> but everybody has something, yes, right? Yes. And you, can, you, you have to spend that time, do your homework. It, the, the internet now exists where you can identify things about other people. They don't, this isn't uh, information they're protecting. They give it to us on social media, LinkedIn and Facebook and so on. If we find things there that are similar to us, we can raise the similarity uh, uh, component. If we find things there that are admirable, we can raise the praise component of our interaction, simply point to it and comment on it. And the, 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 uh, the upshot is a, a better relationship from which to begin any next step. Next principle would be the principle of social proof. Uh, mm. Nobody would be surprised again to learn that we prefer to follow the lead of a lot of others who uh, around us. Uh, and um, so uh, one of the things that we can uh, do if we is to honestly point to things that are uh, th that show that our product or service or idea has resonance with many other people, um, especially peers, especially people who have uh, similar circumstances. And uh, that causes them to reduce their uncertainty that our product or service or idea will be a positive thing for them too. Um, and can I, can, Sorry, can I just add one to, to back this course, up? Yeah. Is when we started off this podcast, it was very, very difficult to get guests on having no previous guests on. After a right. hundred episodes, and you can say in the psychology field that you've interviewed, uh, David Bass or Steven Pinker yeah. or Chris Voss, it becomes a lot easier to get people on. <laughs> It worked on me. <laughs> you did exactly the right thing. Now, we've got some new research that shows that at the beginning, where you are a startup of some sort, you don't have a lot of others to point to. There's some new research. I've contributed to it, but I'm hardly alone, right? That shows 
if you show a trend, that's enough. You don't have to show a majority. You don't even have to show a large percentage of people who are moving in your direction. You just have to show a trajectory. Mm. Because what people do when they see a trend is to project it into the future. It's yes. a very human reaction on the part of who we are. We assume that if you have three, at least three data points to point to. So if you, if you say you have a 20% uh, market share, let's say, I'm not talking about your particular situation, but anybody says, mm -hmm. oh, you know, we have 20% market share. That's a statistic. If you say two years ago, it was 10%, that's a difference. But a difference could mean that last year it was 30% and now it's dropped down to... so. But a trend that says two years ago it was 10%, last year it was 15 this year we're up to 20%, people will assume something we never had before to really characterize, and that is future social proof mm. in your direction something that doesn't even exist yet, but people will project and they will base their decision on the future social proof that you can, that you have available for them to think about. Uh, very powerful. Our results show, if you, if you show a trend, you get a bigger effect than any other way of presenting your case. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. So we've got four so far. What's, yeah, what's... yeah and, and another one is one that also uh, validates what you were saying about uh, telling people who are candidates for being on uh, on your podcast that um, that others have done it. They were people of real uh, authority, right? Mm -hmm. Experts in their area. Uh, and one of the things we do to reduce our uncertainty about what we should choose is to look at what the experts are saying. What are the true authorities on a particular topic saying? So if we can marshal that information, present it to people, and again, before we even begin our attempt to move them, we just certify what we are about to say at the beginning. Here's the one thing I think people forget to do. They don't put those testimonials at the very beginning of their presentation. It's in the body of their presentations. Uh, they point to them. I think they should be at the beginning. And th that aura of authority then infuses all of the, uh, the next information that you present. And there's one other thing that we've recently learned about um, authority influence you can increase it by multiplying it. That is, in keeping with the idea of social proof, what a lot of others are doing, if you can show that multiple authorities are, their voices align with your voice in this. They are saying that either you, what you have is, a, is, is great, or they agree that your direction is great, or the idea you have is one that fits with their their view of the world now you you multiply your impact 
Yes. Yeah. Next principle is uh, commitment and consistency. People want to be consistent with what they have already said or done. And what they've already said or done has a has a term in academic language. It's a commitment. All right. If you've if you've uh, taken a position, taken a stand on some issue in some way or another, and if you, if, if people will take a small step in your direction, if you can arrange for them to do that, now you have a platform from which to make a larger request that is consistent with the step they've already taken, and they'll be much more likely to say yes to it because They've already made a commitment in that direction. Uh, next principle is scarcity. Uh, you know, we, we prefer to say, we, we, we prefer to have more of what we can have less of. It's just the way we're structured. We, we, we are um, reluctant to allow anything that's unique or uncommon or dwindling in availability to escape us. Right? That's especially true, um, by the way, of uh, uh, people, let, let's say millennials, were finding that very powerful because at that stage of their lives, they, they're still searching, they're still investigating the environment and themselves and trying things out. They don't want to let anything pass. So if, if we were to say uh, in a presentation, um, you, you know, this is not something you want to lose. This, because of its scarcity, because it's rare or dwindling in availability, that really gets younger people below 35 to, to move in, in that direction. It also gets older people, but the younger people are at a stage in their lives, they are still learning and they want to be sure they know that all the options are available to them and they've sampled those things. People over that age, more likely I would say over 50, they're more influenced by commitment and consistency. They have had a lot of experiences. They know who they are and what they like. And for those folks, if you point to what they have already said or done or committed themselves in the past to that is congruent with what it is that you are offering them, that's the spur that's most likely to get them to move. In terms and then of the, finally, there's... Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. Could I just, just to, on the scarcity one, just excuse yeah. just one thing I was thinking about was over here, everybody wants a, a Lamborghini or a Ferrari but you never see them advertised on television, right. but you see a Ford Fiesta or, uh, you know, a Volkswagen <laughs> yeah, yeah. and it's flooded with, with, um, you know, with TV adverts. Is that a, like a relation to the scarcity one? Yeah. It, it means that not only are they scarce, there's an exclusivity associated mm. with them, right? That causes people to, to want them more because I mean, there's a, uh, there was an interesting study that was done by a student of mine. Uh, he was he had returned to school to get his PhD in marketing uh, after starting a business in the Phoenix, Arizona area where I live, uh, and he was importing beef into the United States from um, 
from South America and Australia, uh, and then he would sell it to large uh, supermarket concerns. Uh, well, he decided to do a study for his doctoral dissertation where he told his salespeople who contacted their customers by phone to call all their customers, but to divide them randomly into three groups. One group got the standard appeal regarding a new allotment of beef that had just come in. You know, we mm. think this is a good time to buy. Uh, how many carloads of beef would you like? The second group were told, and we've just gotten some information that the because of certain weather conditions in Australia, there's likely to be a shortage of Australian beef. That scarcity information doubled purchasing. But here was the key for me that I thought was so important. The third group were told about this weather set of conditions in, in Australia. And then they were told, this information comes to us from our exclusive sources in the Australian National Weather Service in Canberra. No one else has this information yet. So now you get the scarcity one-two punch, scarcity plus exclusivity, and six times as many people. No, people bought six, as, six times as much beef under those circumstances. So your point is really well taken. It's, it's exclusivity as well as scarcity that um, doubles up on this uh, on this scarcity effect. That is really, really powerful. And then we've already talked a little bit about um, unity. I think like that, I mean, I, I should just give some context into the impact that your work has had. Um, and I, I think it was in Persuasion that I read, or it may have been on a podcast, um, but basically in 2019, I was going for um, a managerial position and um, I heard you on another podcast and uh, you give this tip about what to do before an interview. Yeah. So I sat down at the interview and I was up against a panel of four, four people evaluating me. And I sat down and I said, uh, you know, look, thanks for, for bringing me in before uh, we start. Could you please just tell me, you know, what it was on my CV that, you know, you liked that you wanted to bring me in for? And uh, the lady sitting opposite me, she said, oh, I, we really like this specific experience that you've got in this one area. And I kind of clocked them throughout the interview. I kept winding my mm -hmm. answers back to my <laughs> to my experience in the one area. That is so, so powerful. Yeah. I mean, it was that that's not something that. I developed, I have an acquaintance who said that he was using that strategy and it got him three better jobs in a row. Uh, but what I like about it is that it doesn't just alert you to what it is that they are were already committed to, you know, your strengths so that you could bring that back and remind them of that commitment that they already had to you and your, your resume. But it gets them to make an active public commitment to you right there to focus on your strengths. Here's the thing that we really like about you now for the rest of the interview. They are committed to that positive view of you, 
which makes it more likely they will continue to proceed in that vein. Yes. And is that because we have this desire to be consistent with ourselves? So when I'm saying, oh, uh, Robert is great and he's a great writer and he's this, when I go away tonight after this interview, for me to say opposite, that would cause me some internal discomfort. Is that a reason why? Is that exactly right? Both internally and to anyone who heard this interview. Yes. You wouldn't want to be seen as somebody who says one thing and then says the reverse uh, a few hours later. That just uh, that's not somebody that people like. Yes. Yes. So if we get kind of granular, and since we're on the topic of um, jobs and interviews and whatnot, in the book you talk about interviewers assigning candidates wearing high quality apparel. Um, certain things are kind of and traits that would lead to better job suitability and yeah. starting salaries. Could you elaborate on this one? Yeah. Now, this was a study that looked at um, job interviews uh, across a variety of different settings and, and uh, industries. And they found that if the candidate wore higher quality clothing, they were assigned the trait of greater competence, that the positive associations with the, the clothing uh, s flowed into trait attributions mm -hmm. regarding this individual, right? Uh, which is a little worrisome, isn't it? Uh, that you, that people would make that automatic uh, connection, even though they had resumes and uh, you know previous histories in front of them, that they would allow that uh, superficial. I mean, in in both senses of the word, superficial. It was just what 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 they were wearing. Uh, let that bleed into their uh, decision making. But they did. How could we turn that principle into something that we could apply at a next job interview, for instance? Well, again, uh, we, we, we need to be mindful of that bias on the part of individuals, even those individuals who were uh, looking deeply into our background and history and credentials. There's something else that's going on that we can manage, and that is how we comport ourselves mm -hmm. uh, just by the the clothing we wear. It seems to me it's worth uh, the expense of making sure that you are dressed in a way that implies that you um, have this competence uh, in people's minds. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. I, I would love to just kind of circle back. And if we just pick up on uh, influence in the digital era, because it was some time ago when the original copy came out. So I would just love to pick up on how does social influence now get impacted by the kind of online digital world that we're living yeah. in? So I'm going to say two things that it, that seem opposite to one another but are not. Um, the first is the digital platforms have not changed the power of any of these principles. 
or the applicability of those principles to people's decisions. Um, so uh, what we have found, for example, there was a study done of 6,700 digital commerce sites. Uh, and they looked at, the researchers looked at A-B tests within them uh, for factors that made the biggest difference in moving people into conversion, you know, from, from prospect to customer. And uh, <clears throat> they, they identified 29 separate factors. Some of them were uh, technological. Is there a search function within the, okay. Uh, some of them were economic. Do they provide a free delivery? Uh, some of them were just uh, uh, persuasive. Do they, off, do they um, have a call to action line at the end of the appeal? These kinds of things. Um, but the six principles of influence that I had identified by at that point were the six that rose above all of those others, right? And within the six, the one that was most effective was scarcity, limited number scarcity, so that if you could honestly say to people, there are only so many uh, uh, available at this price or with this upgrade or with this payment plan, or we can only offer this uh, to so many of our people, that's all we have uh, available for them. That was the most powerful, right? Next was social proof. Mm. The one that said, all these other people are doing it and uh, you better do it because there's a trend. We're seeing a trend. Right? <laughs> so exactly what the research has shown to the extent that the third principle was also scarcity, but not scarcity of number, limited number. It was limited time availability. This this offer is only available for the next week or the next month, fortnight, whatever the, it is. Right? And our research outside of the internet had shown exactly that same result. You take the two forms of scarcity, limited number, limited time, limited number wins over limited time. And there's a reason that we've identified it's competition. If there's a limited number, it means you better move now or it or the 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 amount will be depleted. You won't have any, right? Mm. Because there are other people who are doing it. Limited time says within this time you can move at any point. You don't have to jump now. You don't have to be spurred into action now exactly what we find outside of the internet works on the internet too. All right, so what I'm saying is we can change the platforms on which we deliver these principles, but we don't really change the power of the principles. They're the same ones that have worked in other situations. But here's where I'm gonna say what seems like the, the opposite of this. There's one principle that has allowed us 
to use this principle significantly more frequently than we were able before. And that is, and what the internet is allowed, and it's social proof. Because we now have access to voices, to people, to experiences, to star ratings from all kinds of people we never would have been able to make contact with in just a, a person-to-person fashion, right? Now we have all these uh, uh, sources of information about what others uh, have done, what their experiences were, what their opinions are, what their ratings are. And so I would say that what the internet has done is to make social proof a more frequent uh, source of information for us because we have greater access to it. I, you know, I saw a, a, an article that said that of the people who shop religiously online, right? Almost everything they do comes from an online source. They said, 98% of them said, they check product reviews before they buy, right? They check what other people have said. Yes. 98%. We can't get 98% of the people in the world to believe that the earth is round. <laughs> but we can get 98% of this group to, to pile into this particular source of information now because it's so available to us. Yeah. I would love to ask a quirky example about the digital age. I interviewed Professor David Buss, who had done a lot of studies into the dating app Tinder. Um, and Professor Buss said that he, through his research, he found that, A, if somebody uh, said that they had an undergraduate degree on their profile, they were about 30% less likely to get swiped on than someone that said they had a postgraduate degree. And also he found that if a man had pictures of just himself, he was about 40% less likely to get swiped on than if he had pictures of himself in a group of friends. Do you have any thoughts on those? <laughs> so uh, the second one certainly makes sense because what I mean, this was a man, but I think what women are looking for is somebody who's a, a people person, somebody mm. who's going to be uh, uh, sociable and who will talk with them and be somebody who is comfortable with other people. Because, you know, my experience is when you look at the literature on what leads women to divorce, it's guys who won't talk to them, mm. partners who just are silent, who don't bring them in to an everyday exchange. So that kind of image uh, makes great sense to me, I think. Uh, yeah. You mentioned earlier about the power of giving genuine compliments. How can we use social influence to greater improve our personal relationships? You know, um, Joe, this was my greatest weakness. This is my greatest weakness, giving warranted compliments. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a research meeting with my graduate students, and uh, I hear myself 
or I would hear myself say, oh, what Brad just said there was brilliant. Or, oh, how Rosanna just characterized our, circum our current situation leads us directly to what next step we should take. And I would say it to myself. And I would lose all of the goodwill that would come from giving an honest and deserved compliment to people. And um, I've changed that now. Whenever I hear myself saying such a complimentary thing about somebody else, my default now is not just nod to myself, oh yeah, okay, let's take that into account and take our next step based on it. I move it from my mind to my tongue and I provide that information. But there's uh, one particular form of it that I found to be very effective as well. And that is to give compliments that you want people to continue uh, for behaviors you want them to continue to behave to, to enact um, and and uh, there's there's something that that uh, Henry Kissinger was once asked now he was considered the US the the, the greatest international uh, negotiator, uh, bargainer in the U.S. at the time that he was Secretary of State. And he, and he was asked, so of all the bargainers, international negotiators that you saw, who do you think was most effective? And he named Anwar Sadat of Egypt. Right? And he said, what Sadat would do is give his bargaining opponent a reputation that he wanted that opponent to live up to. Mm. So if he was dealing with the Israelis, and let's say under circumstances where the Israelis had more uh, power in the situation, you know, for whatever reason, uh, military power, whatever it was at the time, he would say, you know, I'm so glad to be interacting with you because I know how important from your history it is that Israelis understand the importance of fairness and equity and, and, um, uh, and, and being uh, even-handed with people, even when they're not in positions of power. And Kissinger said he would give them this compliment that gave them a reputation to live up to, and he, and they did. <laughs> Kissinger said it was amazing. They did what he was hoping they would do because he labeled them with that kind of praise that they wanted to live up to. So um, I, I find myself sometimes doing this. I have a a, a newspaper uh, delivery guy who rolls by my house every morning. His name is uh, uh, Kurt. Right? And, and, and so uh, Kurt throws uh, a, a newspaper out the window of his 
automobile onto my driveway. And about 75% of the time, he gets it in the middle so that it doesn't get wet from the watering systems on either side. But what Kurt also always does is to, around the holidays, the Christmas holidays, he includes in one issue of the newspaper a little envelope addressed to him. And I know what it's for. It's for me to send him a check as a tip for all his service during the year. And I always do that. But this year, I remembered what Kissinger was saying about <laughs> about giving people a, a reputation to live up to. Uh, and so I included a little note on uh, that I uh, appended to the check that said, you know, Kurt, uh, thank you for your conscientiousness that you've shown in getting the newspaper in the middle of the driveway. I really appreciate that. In the past, he got it in the drive in the middle about seventy-five percent of the time. This year, one hundred percent. He's living up to the compliment, to the reputation I gave to him about being a conscientious deliverer of my newspaper. Yeah, I, I love that one so much. I appreciate we've got um, just a couple of minutes left, so I thought we could fire through some quick fire ones. Sure. One from. Um, the book that I found was particularly insightful was about a Jewish rabbi during World War II. Could you talk about the single sentence that he used that protected the Jewish community in Japan from the Nazis? At a point uh, at near the beginning of the Second World War, after uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, um, the, the Jewish communities in Japan were threatened because uh, the Nazis were agitating for the Japanese to treat them the way the Nazis were treating Jews in, in Europe. And uh, the, to their credit, the Japanese called uh, on uh, the Jewish communities to send a couple of representatives to, send to give their case, their side of the case here. And uh, when they did, they, there were two rabbis, uh, one was known to be an especially wise kind of psychologist guy. He was the one who, if you had trouble with your inside your family or you had some kind of a deal with uh, neighbors that was uh, going awry, uh, if you talked to him, he would give good counsel because he understood human dynamics. So anyway, the, at the at the meeting, uh, these two rabbis were there, and there's a, a, a tribunal of uh, Japanese. Uh, uh, military officers, and they said, "Okay, let's cut right to the chase here. Why do our not, why do our allies, the Nazis, hate you so much? And secondly, why should we side with you against our allies?" Right? And this uh, this rabbi, known for his psychological understanding, said, "Because we're Asian, like you." We're of you. You're of us. You, with the Nazis, you know, they hate us for the same reason. They're going to hate you. You're not, you're not one of the master race. You're Asian. That's why they hate us. Secondly, this is why you should take our side versus them. That's just what you have now is a temporary wartime alliance. 
What we share with you is membership in a self-defining group, Asians, right? And 45 minutes later, they were leaving, they, they left, the, the rabbis left the room with the, with the uh, promise that their communities would not be harmed during the war. And so it was. So, so beautiful. Um, I want to just fire through quick fire steeple ones, which we always ask our guests at the end. And then please, we want to ask you where, to, where these guys can get the new book and all about your work. So I always ask our guests at the end of every podcast, what makes a life worth living? A contribution. In fact, a life of contribution. That's what it is. That's how I've always tried to talk to my kids about how they should arrange themselves. Now, you can make contributions in all kinds of areas, but the idea is to make contributions to the larger good in that area, rather than just your own individualistic uh, outcomes. Yeah. I love that answer. I want to pay my gratitude to you because, um, as I said at the start, I've been a fan of your work for many years. I feel like you were really trying to make your work accessible and also to really, really improve the lives of the people that read it. So let me pay my gratitude to you for making our lives better. Well, thank you. I appreciate hearing that. My pleasure. Robert, where can these guys uh, connect with you and where can they get the new updated influence and whatever else you've got going on? Yes. Yeah, so our our website is influenceatwork.com and they can get access to uh, what we do there. I mean, the book, but also we have uh, training programs, including a new on-demand online training program for ethical influence, if you want to be more uh, influential and, and still ethical at the same time, uh, we have that available and uh, various other kinds of sources of information about the influence process uh, that are available there too. I'm going to link these guys to everything which we've discussed today. This has been such a pleasure, such a treat for me. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. I enjoyed it, Joe. I did. <laughs>